This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. independent community media. I'm Bruce Scott, Mel Driscoll, and guests until two o'clock this afternoon. It is February 27, and uh, of course uh, we've got the war in Ukraine, and um, there's similarities in our history piece today because it's on February 27, 1933, 89 years ago today, the burning of the Reichstag in Berlin is a mystery. Till this day, no one really knows who's to blame. Observers, despite blaming the Communist Party and the Nazi Party and a Dutch national, all roads led to the Nazi Party and Adolf Hitler and Hermann Goering. Goering, as police minister, authorised the raid on Berlin's Communist Party headquarters. Hitler told a foreign correspondent, God great... Sorry, God grant that this is the work of the communists. You are witnessing the beginning of a great new epoch in German history. This fire is the beginning. Well, Hitler then went on to suppress communist and socialist newspapers, the Goering raid on the Communist Party headquarters, and they looked for evidence of a revolutionary plot. Sadly, a man who was later exonerated 75 years later, Dutchman Marinus van der Lubbe, he was beheaded by guillotine by Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Yes, he was pardoned 75 years ago. So this is, this is similarities to what is happening in Russia at the moment with Vladimir Putin. I had to struggle to find a song from 1933, so let's try this.
love is the sweetest thing. Reminding you this day that the Reichstag in Berlin was burnt down this day 89 years ago. And it was possibly, it was, you have to admit it, it was the Nazis that burned it down. They blamed the Dutchman who was executed, beheaded. He was exonerated 75 years later. Now Hitler wouldn't have liked this artist because he was Mozambican-born South African British vocalist and jazz guitarist. Al Bowley. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Do you remember the time that we invited in a couple, hard-working, mm-hmm. James Seddon and Rachel McGovern? Yes. They launched, well, more than two years ago now, an enterprise that James had cherished since childhood to revive a business as it used to be, using such original features as could be salvaged. He was referring to the original fittings, dusting them off to repurpose them. And that business was in Frankton. It was the Europa service station. Oh, yeah, I walked past it a lot. It was there and not being used in any obvious way, but still intact and a building that is respected for its heritage. And, of course, it was surrounded by industry in its earliest days, Uh, because of the main trunk line coming there and later the development of the Frankton Overbridge simply because the main trunk was just too busy. One of the most busy junctions of the whole nation, evidently. Well, it was disappointing to discover, covered very much by the Waikato Times in detail, it indicated that the vandals had undone so much of the work that had been achieved with loving attention to detail because that's the kind of skill that James Seddon had and with his building background he was able to really spruce it up so that it was none the worse for wear $20,000 worth of damage was the first estimate shattered glass, ripped apart it must have been gut-wrenching for a man and a woman who had put so much into making that business presentable to have to be set back and recover so much shattered glass, 
Wow, you know, it must be difficult to take, and yet he put on the very bright face that he shows to us all in interviews here on radio. I know if he were to speak for himself, he might even minimise the effect of it. It happened early in the morning. He, he starts at five o'clock, it seems, with preparing the cabinet, he calls it. I guess it's some baking and things like that to get it going and that, and then later joined by staff and customers. And so let's wish well the future for the Lost Voice Cafe <laughs> with the help of a lot of friends, and a lot of them seem to have the skills that are required. Already it's back in business and not looking too much the worse for the vandalism. Yeah, you and I would remember the brand name Europa. Wasn't it Pegasus, the flying horse? That was a symbol of the Europa um, petrol... The oil company. I uh, think you're right. Yes. And, of course, uh, Europa was at Walsh Motors. Sadly, it's uh, BP right at this moment. So, Europa, it was the brand name outside Walsh Motors near the Pink Church on Victoria Street in Hamilton. Sorry, in Cambridge, Victoria. There's lots of Victoria Streets. It seems that this was not a kind of attack singling out one cafe on its own. On the same night, there were four other cafes that came to the notice of the police, burglaries or broken in some way. It's a growing problem. Yep. I, I can tell you that someone tried to break into the warehouse through the mesh gates. The mesh gates are now closed. I don't know if it's permanent, but I was, I've been told they tried to break into the windows into the where, uh, warehouse stationery. This town is becoming lawless. We don't know what's going on with these people. This is the sign of the times. After one o'clock, we'll give you the latest uh, statistics from the COVID-19. They went up big time yesterday. We had a walk over the bridge, illegal. Camping out in the Auckland domain, illegal. And uh, I read that um, current Mayor of Auckland, Phil Goff, is ropeable about what's happened at the Auckland Harbour Bridge and sadly the police are just letting them through. We've got a lack of police in this country. Well, good things. Let's remember a day in 1970 that New Zealand first hit the song. It's by a, by a couple called Jack Blanchard and Misty Morgan. Sadly, both are dead now. Um, Jack Blanchard died aged 72 on June 15, 2014. And I can't tell you... Misty Morgan's death. But this song was played on the radio over and over and over again. It was one of those one-hit wonders. It's called the Tennessee Bird Walk. It's our big past. Take away the trees and the birds will have to sit upon the ground. Um, take away their wings and the birds will have to walk to get around. And take away the bird baths And dirty birds will soon be everywhere Take away their feathers And the birds will walk around in underwear Take away their And the birds will have to whisper when they sing Take away their common sense And they'll be headed southward in the spring Remember me, my darling, when spring's in the air And the ball has birds are whispering every 
feathers so their underwear no longer will be seen How about a little so the birds won't have to whisper when they sing And how about some common sense so they won't be blocking traffic in the spring Oh remember me my darling when spring is in the air and the fall FM 89.0 independent community media yes I was a school kid when that song came out so that's how many years ago doesn't bother counting it's 7 to 1 and that's the Tennessee Birdwalk the late Jack Blanchard and Misty Morgan Mel Shona Hammond Boys QSM is the national director of the New Zealand Art House Children's Foundation and someone who benefited by the stream of education and has seen a lot of the adjustments in the curriculum and some complaints we'll hear about later. But just to begin where your life began, Shona, you were born at the end of the Second World War. That was in Takuiti. What's the connection with the king country of your family? Well, it's a very large uh, connection because the Hammond family are from Ohakuni, and that's um, the ground route under Ruapehu. And then my mother and father went to Piri Ora, which is the, the beautiful bush uh, near Ruapehu, and from then moved to Hairini, where I was raised in the early days of my schooling at Kihi Kihi Primary School. Was it a natural transition for you into the teaching profession? Um, I was always a teacher, I think. Um, I realised that when I was six years old, I had a bit of an epiphany and realised that there was an awful lot not happening that I would like to see happening in my little primary school. <clears throat> and perhaps I'd better just train myself up and, and have my dreams come true. You were exposed to that predominantly Māori village of the time in Kihiki. It may still be the associations with the tribes that fought so bravely against superior forces such as we see a situation unfolding in the Ukraine. Similarly, unbalanced resistance, but did this lead to any early understanding you might have had of the Maori? I think it, it really made me. I think what happened in those years made me eventually go back to Kihikihi after having been all around the world and set up art houses and set up an art house on the land that Ruru Maniapoto and Governor Gray had made an agreement that here on this reserve uh, children would be able to grow together creatively and in peace. And so I endeavoured to set up a headquarters there for the New Zealand Children's Art House Foundation and in fact did set up an art house and a conference centre and a library and I was working towards putting a castle there in the Kihikihi. Uh, this was around about the year 2000. But because of circumstances of the day and because the council wanted then for my organisation to pay corporate rates, I said, I can't continue to do this work here. That's not the sort of uh, platform that we, we 
uh, STEAM and work to, and so I left there and then came over to Opoltiki. But there had been 25 art houses set up by the time I had gone to Kihikihi, and I had been around the world um, to many different countries looking at the models that existed for fostering children's creativity in their communities. You were one of those scholars who went to the Waikato University and Teachers Training College after yes. that had been in some way divorced from whatever came before. Yes, um, I was a founding student of uh, Waikato University and became um, the society's representative for students at the university. I had been in America on a field scholarship to New York prior to going to Waikato University, and I was very deeply disappointed that the Maori content was not strong in what was being offered, because I saw Tainui put in a lot of effort to fund that university and get it started. So I was very, very happy when many years later, my brother, Sir Grant Hammond, was able to get the law um, department strengthened at Waikato and get the Māori law become a, a real established place in that university. It must have been a cultural shock, the girl from Hairini arriving in New York. You are so right. I got to Stanford University the second day I arrived in America and I threw up all over their carpet because here was this beautiful chandelier and, and, and so much wealth that I found it very hard to take in. It was a true culture shock. I had three weeks at Stanford at that time in orientation and I really needed that orientation before I went over to New York and stayed with an exceptional family in New York who uh, told me about Western ways and particularly about music and art. I was very fortunate. You would have seen at Stanford University some of the blue bloods of American society, the young, the young men and the young women. What were they like? Well, I didn't like them. I struggled and I think that's why it was a real culture shock because I had been pretty much a cowgirl on a farm and was a family who were disciplined and very hardworking, but also very, very well read and educated. And I found that the, the freedom of expression and running around in cars with the, the hoods down and yahooing really didn't attract me at all. So I became quite quiet. I must say Stanford was a big shock because I loved the library, I liked the lecturers, I liked the whole idea of Stanford, but I found it hard to relate to the young American in, in the early 60s. Mm. Did you yearn for the culture that had surrounded you, perhaps not in its strength of the pre-European days, the Māori and their perception of legendary inhabitants of the bush wrapped in cloaks of flax and fern and having sometimes extraordinary powers to meddle for good or for evil in the affairs of humankind. Absolutely. 
I learned so much and I have learned so much from my deep uh, connection with Maoridom. I'm very, very grateful to have this part of their culture, part of my life. And, and it has strengthened me because I've been to places like Papua New Guinea and, and lived up in the highlands there. I've been across Africa. I've been across China. And it is the essence of life and in its relation to the earth, to planet earth, that I learned from the Maori, which I actually carry with me. And I'm very grateful for that early upbringing and that in, I had in the bush. In these different cultures, Papua New Guinea, so many different streams, I wonder if you found the universal interests of especially children as you went about the world? Well, I'm totally committed to children. <coughs> they are in advance of us. They are born into a totally different age. They bring in the news afresh, the ideas that we need to see and hear. <coughs> They're on a different journey than we are. And I found that even the children in Papua New Guinea, they are my teachers. I learned so much from being every day with children. And I endeavor now to spend part of every day with children, whether it's just down by the river, playing in the water, wherever it is, when children are free in a space to be creative, they are creative. Have but children changed, Shona? Unfortunately, we have a, a, a huge hole and a dilemma in our society that from the age of really 8 to 12, children close their dream eyes. Children live in a sort of dream world initially and they love the fantasy and, and they can imagine so much and when their imagination is closed down because of our restrictions, our, our formulas and um, requirements we place upon them in education, some of them don't get that back until they're about 40 and they say, but you know, I was really interested in whatever it was when I was um, seven, eight, and nine, and I've done nothing about it. I'm returning to that place now to pick myself up. And I really am very sad about what humanity is losing um, in the process of our so-called education. Is, is, is it true that a lot of schools don't teach their students art these days? That's absolutely true. Art is marginalised almost out of existence in our schools, in, and, and this is across the world. America is certainly leading the way. That partly comes from changing STEM and uh, STEAM into STEM. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and maths, which is the uh, forerunning uh, philosophy of American education now. But STEAM has um, science, technology, art, Yep. And uh, the word A in there has gone from education because art takes time, it takes space, it takes money, um, it takes a wet area because you might be dealing with clay or wood and, and um, various materials, and it is very expensive. And art has been used to fund 
our computer society. So when the schools wanted to take over technology and, and get the machines into their schools, they'd put on school plays and school productions to raise money, but the money never went back into the art department. I, I know in my time at Kaipaki School, the education board at the time, they hired artists like Para Matchett. Remember the late Para Matchett? Yes, I do. He was employed by the education board and he came out to the Kaipaki School. He, he took us for, uh, through art classes. Um, we did pottery. We had a kiln out the back of the school and we were once a feature of the old television series Town on the Round. We, oh, how uh, wonderful. Yep, well, no, no. of course, I believe the artists existing in our communities today should be playing a very large part in all the schools. And artists in residence, wonderful. However, we have a problem. What we are doing is we are saying to seven-year-olds, now you're going to study Van Gogh and you're all going to paint a sunflower painting this way and we're producing 35 paintings of sunflowers all done the one way. When the children in that class could all choose a flower that they want to do and do it in their own style, their own way, and they may not even want to do a painting, they may want to do a carving or a clay or knit it or something, um, we should be getting 35 different sunflowers if we're going to study sunflowers. And we shouldn't certainly be asking seven-year-olds to study a dead model from another country and another age when they have their own work to do and they're chomping at the bit to get a chance to try their own individual artistic experiences out. And as we starve them of that, we lose their, their ability to dream their development of their imagination and it is a very serious personal problem yep. how, how, how do you think Ruri Maniapoto who's buried in the street of main street of Kiki his statue is there he's yes. buried under a statue what do you think of what he would if he was alive today what would he think about what's going on with art in schools these days I think Ruri would be very very disappointed because Kihikihi, until most recently, had a lovely carving area and it was there when he was alive and they all came in and I watched them. I watched the development of the Tewananga Aotearoa Apakura campus where there were one or two old-fashioned teachers there who were allowing the artists, young youth people in the area led by Ronga Wetari to do their own carving, their own weaving to get young gangs off the street so that they were not bored and disenfranchised uh, 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 in any way, I think Riri would be very, very sad to see the plight of his young people today, who many of them <coughs> are forced into unskilled labour in order to get a job and to do things that they really have no interest in in order to make money to, to make a life. Uh, that's a very sad um, situation for me to be observing. After all, art in the Māori mind represents so much more than an attractive finished result. It's the deeper significance of every chisel of the wood and okay. even the wood itself. Yes. Um, well, art is, of course, a process. It's the product is one aspect of it but it's the process of being the creative species of creating we all 
have this ability. We are the creative species on planet Earth. Animals don't create, but we have imagination. We can invent, explore, discover. And children at a very early age need to get up, and the first thing they're going to do is touch things and feel things and explore the world. And if we lose that love of life and of exploring, we become bored, boring, and ugly. And often, I think, when I meet some of our fabulous young artists who who fall into the pattern of being bored and may even think of suicide, we are breeding um, this for children because we've taken away their opportunity to study their own talent, their own ability, their own place of high interest. And I think all our schools, and that is all our schools in New Zealand, need to really look at what the hobbies and passion and interest of the children in this art and creative field is and strengthen it. Do you think also that some schools, rural or town, should um, have flax growing out the back and, like me, did a bit of basket weaving when I was at school too? Do well, you th- of course they should have that and they should have um, a greater emphasis on exploring nature around us and using natural materials for making things. Um, wherever possible because art and the environment uh, run very close but art is the foundation tool for all learning it is the um, it is it is the creative force within us and it's it's very personal and so it's um, I, I say we're studying we've got two great gods on planet earth at the moment the god of science and the god of arts and I believe we're following the wrong God home when we follow science because we need art. Each human being needs to have their own talent, understand who they are, what they can be, what they can do by developing their talent throughout their life. Yeah, I I wish my uh, friend and colleague Trevor Lloyd was here at the moment because he's an artist and Mel and I have seen some of his works and uh, we, we may get a comment from him when he comes in just before 2 o'clock this afternoon. So, Trevor, I hope you are listening right at this point of time. This, yes. This? Yes. Well, I think all of us, the human being, we have to remember, well, first of all, art is long and sport is short. And when we get a handle on that, it's a very big way forward. A physical fitness fit um, when you go out and get fit is, is, is over. But art is a long process and in historic terms too we leave architecture so we know what happened in rome and we know all the signposts that we leave through our products through our art um, teaches us about ourselves and about humanity so because art is expensive in that in that way and when they put carpet through schools well then the kids couldn't get anything dropped on it then art went out the window and it's tragic humanity. In Papua New Guinea, did you take an active interest in the art as practiced in the, in the highlands, the remote areas? The I certainly did, and I failed. I tried to make myself a billum to thread the flax through my teeth and chew a nut at the same time, and I am very capable, I thought, at dressmaking and sewing and creating, knitting and crochet. But I found it so complicated and so difficult, I 
ended leaving um, the Highlands with a, a complete scream, a psychological scream that I felt came from me because I had been civilized out of existence. I couldn't make or do in the same fine way that these people could make with their hands, which were so flexible, and they could make um, many, many things out of the natural environment, and of course it would recycle back into the environment. And I really learned an enormous lesson from Papua New Guinea. While you taught them art, did they in return teach you uh, pidgin English? I just, yes, I learned pidgin English. And I thought, um, I learned how to say aya um, when they, at church service, when they were all praying. And the service always went, God, he, say a. And I learned how to put aya on the back of every word that I said while I was there. Um, Pigeon English, yes, very useful. Were you born with an affinity for art, inherent in you? Totally. Totally born. I'm a child of art, and I, and I believe that my um, my being is creative, and I hope to remain being creative. I, I write a lot of music. I play. I've written some musicals. You know, I paint. I sing. I've written a lot of books. I've made films. I um, am being myself when I am busy on projects which um, are basically on themes themes of peace. I am very concerned about peace. I'm concerned about what's happening in Wellington and in Ukraine and I feel that um, if people had had uh, more skill at being themselves and following their own lives and being responsible for their own talents, maybe we would have less war. Well, I've already compared this today earlier in the program that Putin is, I compare him to Hitler and Stalin you agree? Well, I think Putin is a man who has been uh, bred by the society he's lived in, and he's he's cut off and he's become unempathetic. Now, empathy is an important aspect of art because when you engage in doing art, you learn empathy. And I don't think Putin displays very much empathy with the rest of the world. It's his world, and that's the only world he knows. And that's um, a problem for artists, because when artists do develop empathy, they can be called very sensitive, or even much worse words that I got called when I was young. You know, um, uh, my parents really didn't like the extent of my art, the extent that I played the piano with my own compositions that I really should be studying Bach and Beethoven and doing it properly. I don't think doing it properly uh, is the answer. I think it's exploring your own ability is the answer to finding peace. And when you do that, you learn empathy. So the International Child Art Foundation, of which I'm um, New Zealand's partner on that board in Washington, is talking now a lot to United Nations about the development of empathy in our children so that they're divergent, that they're inclusive, and they know that you can love art, but loving everybody's art is very difficult because everybody's art is different because we are all individuals and we are all responsible for ourselves. Yes. So, yes. 
if Putin the has Put gone on to a singular track. If the Putins of this world are seen to succeed politically in ways that can then influence everyone else, I wonder if it's just a question of changing the mil- milieu, the, the environment in which children grow up and produce a different sort of politician. Oh, definitely. We have seen so many examples through International Child Art Foundation on the work of children where the child can express itself and is passionate and kind because loving art and being kind go together. The world can be changed to become more loving and become more human. And, of course, we all want to see the end of war and we know that um, we have to train our children and how to become more kind. I say art is the foundation tool and that it's done via strengthening our talents um, to breed the kind of children we need for the future. As children are the innocent bystanders in the events that happen, whether in Wellington, outside of Parliament, or in the streets of Kiev, what they observe they have little experience of categorizing its human behavior of their their elders are those exposures to the unnatural we might say the violence what determines the children's mental well-being and are the therapeutic benefits of art such that it can overcome the problems that might be sown during periods of conflict of, of well I've done a lot of work on art therapy and, and that is used for traumatic situations like we sent 65 people into Haiti and um, after traumatic events around the world we send groups of art psychotherapists. But art is not a luxury and it's not a therapy. We need to say that art is a human necessity and we find the children who are coming through the art houses who are happy in their own exploration and in their own art development can be stable. They understand that um, abuse is abuse and, and of course once a child has been abused they will never want to abuse anybody else. They've had the experience. They know that you know, if I've been abused it stops with me. I would never abuse anyone after that because that's not on, it's not what we want. So art is a tremendous teacher in uh, helping us make sense of the world and understand a better future. Have you seen the evidence from your moving among children of different cultures, remembering that New Zealand now has a number of children who have come from refugee situations, where it's evident from a painting, for instance, that this child is really disturbed by what they're depicting. I've seen a lot of evidence of um, art as, as a teacher and as a healer. And I'm not keen on the word art therapy, although I worked with Whitecliffe College of Art of Education in the writing of their master's degree in art therapy. I think that art is so much more than just a therapy or something I pick up to correct myself with. I feel that the artist, is a tremendous survivor. And I will just tell you the story um, of my mentor I met in New York who had been at Auschwitz, who was 
commissioned by the college to do a bust of me because when in the Outswitch camp she had taken the clay and the urine and moulded a head each day of the person next door to her in the camp, she had whittled five pieces of wood to make her equipment and the guards saw and they pushed the people away and they had their heads done. Then the generals saw and they had her make the head and she had done President Kennedy. She had nothing. She created out of nothing and she survived. And I thank her, Hugo Philkaitis, enormously for the lesson she taught me that we can survive by using our talent and creativity will save us. That creativity in us is a good force if we use it um, wisely. But of course, nowadays, much of our creative activities need feasibility study put on it before we even do it, because it could be dangerous to the environment or to humanity. And we need to check that as we're working, that what we're doing is adding to the betterment of society as well as the art what sort of music do you listen to when you're discovering new art forms well i listen to all music um, all music is um a discussion about the essence of, of of being and the person who's creating it i am very very prone to um beethoven and bach because i was so um engrossed in that but I love um, the singing, the six-part harmony singing of the local Maori people, which is natural to them, <coughs> which I can hear across the road when the families get together, and I can hear them singing in this lovely free form. Um, I find it very beautiful. I think music is a, a, a transporting language, and I think it's very profound. In every culture that I've been in, I've been thrilled with the music I was thrilled with what I heard and saw in China um, so yes music is just absolutely global for me so you would bypass a Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata it's very moody isn't it I play it um, if I'm deeply sad I find I will probably pull it out and play it and I can cry while I play it and, and it, it moves me that much even if it's I've played it a hundred times I'm affected by music. I used to play the church organ, and then I found that, you know, I was um, playing the organ at a funeral for someone who I didn't know, and I was deeply moved just by the music. Um, yes, I find it fabulously transporting. At the other end of the spectrum are the people who would say, I'm no good at art, it's useless, and it doesn't move them. But... They will have an art form. They could be a gardener. Art can be um, many, many, many things. It's not, a, you know, they could be a sewer. They might be a maker. They might be a great reader. They may love the sea and be collecting shells. They might be collecting all sorts of things. Art is not a painting on a wall. I mean, that's just um, as the smallest possible way of ever looking at art, is thinking, oh, I can't draw, I'm not an artist. But then I might say to that person, but, you know, where did you get that, that wonderful um, dress that you're, ma you're wearing? Oh, well, I made it. Well, you're a creator. It's what you create. You could be a cook. You could, you know, there's so many things we do. Our whole room that we're sitting in has been created by architects. You know, the colour of it, whatever. There's so, in so many ways, we're manifesting our creativity. 
There are traditional ways that the environment supplied the means by which to execute art. Uh, rocks to take a primitive form, scratches on the, way, on the walls of a cave. But if we come to now, images are more often created on a computer screen. Do you wholeheartedly endorse that as a tool of art? Now, the computer is um, a tool, and it depends entirely how we use it. I think the addiction of the computer is a problem because we need to develop head, hands, and heart connectedness. And head, hands, and heart connectedness in our creativity is important. So children who have done computer artwork for International Child Art Foundation have not put their hand skills into it and been fully connected as beings are actually not producing the same sort of art statements as those who colour in a computer or, or sketch art or use the computer to do it. But the computer is just a tool. And of course, those people leading the whole revolution, the info-techno revolution on Earth at the moment, many of them are artists. And I've been to Hollywood, I've been to LA, and I've worked with the film producers and making films and seen how much uh, creative activity some of them are engaging in, in their mind, bringing ideas together. But um, on a computer, it is only just a tool. Are you a fan of the mysterious artist known to us as Banksy? Banksy and I are very familiar with each other. And right now, in a portico, we put in 30 murals by youth. 30 murals by youth. We were never thanked by the council. We have not been supported by the council, who've had their town... Uh, um, Graffiti has been eliminated in, in Oportuki because of the youth art. One or two of the paintings recently have had graffiti put on the murals. And we think that there's somebody like Banksy operating in our town now who's putting in some statements. I find it very fascinating that this is happening because if the town, and that largely is the, by the council's leadership, had thanked the children for doing what they've done, for cleaning up the town, maybe Banksy wouldn't have arrived, but Banksy is um, making a few statements now, and that's fascinating to me. And, of course, we can't forget the Hudavasa Art Centre up in Whangarei. What do you think of it? Oh, I think it's marvellous. I think we should have, for example, in a school, you have 12 teachers. I think every teacher should be different. If Mrs... Smith likes playing the violin, she should have a violin at school and she should play a few songs for the children, maybe play them a song every day. And Mr. Logan next door might like the drums and he might beat his drum two or three times a day. That every classroom should be different and that the teachers should be leading this movement by sharing their creativity, their original ideas with the children. But that doesn't happen. It's all formula-driven techniques and skills which actually masquerade as virtuosity and it's false. And it doesn't work. It's taking out rather than putting in. That empathy and that life interest in each individual is being different and creative. Hundenwasser was different and creative. I'm, it took a long time to get that and I really congratulate the people who have been able to work 
followed me to get one example in New Zealand of an artist who is considered to be a bit different than everybody else. Was Huntervasser an exuberant child at heart? Yes, and there are many exuberant children who are put down um, and and then lose heart. And when that dream life is, uh, is estranged from them, it's a very difficult task to get through that. So there's some pretty difficult childhoods going on. I've been making the New Zealand Children's Art House collection for now 35 years, and it's gifted to, to the collection from wonderful child artists who are giving a piece to this collection. It's available to go through New Zealand and I'm hoping that, you know, I'll get people ringing up and saying, how can we have a look at this collection? Because I'd like to see, I have been hoping to see a castle of children's art built here where we have it like a museum, where we can see how incredible some of our children are, like Kondenvasa was when he was the little boy. And where might such a museum as you conceive likely be? Well, I have been striving to um, get a museum at Tirau in the castle there, but unfortunately it's gone into the hands of one adult artist who will run it as a medieval museum, and I'm sure it will be run very well. But that's nothing like the opportunity of having, you know, the standalone permanent art houses that we're trying to get throughout New Zealand, and then the castle where we can actually see how fantastic our children are. I suggest Kiki. Well, I left Kiki to come to a Portiki because I felt that the tremendous, um, uh, it's a, an 85% Maori population, East Coast, um, and the, the two communities, the Pakeha and the Maori communities living together, is a, a great place for me to study. And I really enjoy the research and the chance that I have to be here and I'm hoping in the next couple of years to produce quite a few new books um, on what I'm seeing here that may help us uh, find our way. It's a, be- it's a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for phoning. Hey, no, no. We, we, I'm interested in, in art and uh, I see it in uh, Scotland and uh, all around the world that uh, art is popular. And I, I look at the portraits of Bonnie Prince Charlie and the royal family. What great, art, what great artwork. Yes, absolutely. I did a, de- a degree in um, portraiture and my, my granny came from Blair Castle in oh, Scotland. I'll have to play a Scottish song before we disappear out of here this afternoon. Because that's in me too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, thank you for joining us and we hope to chat again. Yes, please do. Shona, okay. Shona Hammond Boys, QSM, the National Director of the New Zealand Art House Children's Foundation. Thank you. I better tell you that the rates of COVID have gone up again. There are 14,941 new COVID-19 community cases reported today. One person with COVID-19 has died from an unrelated medical condition announced by the health department. There are now 305 people in hospital with COVID-19, including five in an intensive care or the high dependency unit. The new community cases across the country, Northland 225, Auckland 9,046, Waikato 1,019, Bay of Plenty 812, Lakes 208, Hawke's Bay 136, Mid-Central 
142, Whanganui, 19, Taranaki, 100, Tarafiti, which is, of course, Gisborne, 69, Waiarapa, 45, Capital and Coast, 516, Hutt Valley, 373, Nelson Marlborough, 158, Canterbury, 981, South Canterbury, 44, Southern, 532, West Coast, 9, and five others are unknown or yet to be classified. It's gone up a 1,000, Mel. It's all around us. Yeah, so take it easy as you travel around our community today. And people, on those scooters, please wear a mask. I, I, I saw some of the idiots out on the street last night. You people are putting our lives in danger. And as promised for Shona, yep, her family's origins are in Scotland.
93 FM, 89.0. Independent community media, that is the late Robert Wilson, Scotland the Brave. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. Well, it's time to reintroduce us to our rock and roll loving guest from last week, Mel. Patricia Gregory, JP. It's tragic to think that your childhood memory of war in Europe as a toddler in Sheffield, UK, would all these years later, after so long at peace, repeat cruel violence on another generation of children the other side of Europe, in the Ukraine? Hello? Hello. <laughs> How I'm are you? Sorry, you I'm fine, thank you. It went very faint and I couldn't yeah. hear what you were saying. So well, I'm we, sorry about that. Well, you're a big fan of rock and roll, um, among other things, and we might have a... <laughs> <laughs> you you like you liked rock around the clock? Yes, I did. I um, well, I remember it coming in, and it was very daring and very oh, infradig in those days. <laughs> how how come people got so infatuated with an overweight American country singer with a kiss yeah. curl, etc., etc., brill cream hair? He was yeah. way, he was he was way past a teenager. He certainly was, um, Bill Haley, wasn't it? Yeah, no, I don't know. I didn't particularly like him, but I guess it was the beat of the music which still captures people today, doesn't it? Does the television and radio coverage of events and the sounds coming from Ukraine bring back any memories for you, who, after all, was um, a child in the Second World not, War? Not really, because, as I explained last week, uh, I was about four before I began to realise the enormity of the war, and by then the war was over. Uh, uh, I was born in 42, so about 46, I guess, and the war was over in 45. But I did, I, for some reason, I remember an air siren. Maybe even as a young baby, you that sound, you know, you knew the fear it created. Uh, perhaps it, nev- it will never leave me. When you played it last week, it did bring it back. <laughs> you reached New Zealand, as you explained, as a teenager, attracted by the prospect of marriage to settle in a new nation. How did it work out? Yes, it, um, it was... Well, to start with, the wages that I got when I got here were just incredible because England and New Zealand were on a path and we all had the pound uh, and we, they were worth the same. A pound here was worth the same as a pound in England. But I had been left England on a wage of three pounds, two and sixpence and I arrived here and got a wage of 15 pounds a week and um, prices here were cheaper. Uh, bread, flour, milk, butter, vegetables, fruit, so I thought I'd arrived in paradise, to be honest. <laughs> Had your partner the same experience? Yes, yes, we, um, yeah, we both. Um, he was on fifteen pounds a week as well as a draftsman. So um, you know, equal pay for women uh, in New Zealand, more or less, it was certainly very different to the pay in England. So after we were married, we we were on thirty pounds a week. Where were we you living? In Tokoroa for the 
first year and we had a house with the job and the rent was taken out of your wages. So it was only about three pounds a week anyway. So we, you know, we really were well off. You, you would have seen the building of the Kinleith Mill down in Tokoroa. Yes, I worked, worked in the Kinleith Mill. was picked up every morning by a bus outside the door. Went driven out to Kinleith and then dropped off again at the end of the day. So no petrol bills. Did um, you trouble yeah. yourself, Pat, with anything to do with local government in those days? No, not in those days. Local government came into my life when my... Um, children. To start with, um, David Longy was the MP in the electorate where we lived. Uh, and that was interesting because he went to a church just down the same road as we did, Methodist Church, and we were in the Baptist Church. And um, we often used to combine the two churches. And David and Naomi would come along. I also, and I was a secretary in the local school, and the one of their children I enrolled there. Um, and so I, be, I was interested because of that connection. But I'd begun to get um, a, a bit interested because of the things that the government were doing. And the, the big thing, I think, was when they agreed to abolish or looked at abolishing corporal punishment in schools. And my three children, one was a, they were all at high school, that's right. So I went to each of them individually and just said, look, what do you think about this business of no more cane and so on? And expecting them to say, hooray, hooray. And each child um, in their own way more or less said, well, um, if you do something bad enough to get the cane and you get the cane, you feel somehow like you've had your punishment. But... Um, the alternative was wearing a red, a green, uh, sorry, a yellow jacket and picking up rubbish out of the school ground or it's detention. And all three said they'd far sooner have a whack of the cane than the other alternatives, which they, they said were laughable because you didn't feel you'd paid the penalty for your, for your transgression, if you like. And that really got me thinking. It really kind of stirred me up. So I wrote to Merv Wellington and shared this with him. And his reply was, thank you for your letter, but I intend abolishing corporal punishment in schools. And that really shocked me because I thought Merv Wellington had asked for the people of the country to give their opinion. And I had given mine after research with my own kids and one or two others, and he totally dismissed it. And that shocked me. So I began to get a lot more interested in politics from then on. And so from time to time, I would write a letter in the paper. And somehow or other, I seemed to have a bit of a knack because I think just about every letter I ever wrote got published. <laughs> and, and Patricia and Gregory. <laughs> Patricia <laughs> Well, Patricia Gregg, you were not one to brush aside. You've demonstrated that over and over. You I, come back. Yeah, of course you came from a country where public schools had fagging and beatings and the cane and a lot of that punishment was handed out by the uh, senior students in those uh, public schools. Yes, but I wasn't, uh, my family weren't certainly 
not in that league. There's very much a class society in England in those days. I don't think it's quite so bad. And we were definitely not in the class where you could go to school and where there was spagging and all that. Um, we um, just went to the local. I went to a girls' school, but it was just a, a government school. Uh, I don't ever remember getting the cane or anything. I only remember once getting my bottom smacked when I went into a wrong playground when I was about five. Um, <laughs> the teacher just turned me over a knee and slapped my bottom and said, don't come in this playground again till you're older. And that's the only punishment I ever remember from school. Um, but they did, the, the, the ruler was often used because it was a girls' school. But never, I don't ever feel it was used unfairly. As a young so, married couple settling in Tokoroa initially, what were your aspirations? Because the income seems more than subsistence level, so it gave you the opportunity to plan to enjoy other things. Yes, except that I got pregnant and was married one year and one day when our first child was born. And in those days, you didn't go to work when you were after about three months pregnant. So from um, being on, very well off, uh, my husband moved, had a, got a job in Auckland, so we moved to Auckland at the same time and rents were very expensive they were took over a third of his salary so from being very well off in Tokoroa we then had to um, struggle if you like um, to get the money together to buy our first house and it was a struggle but we were able to capitalize on the family benefit in those days and that's the only way I think that we would have got our own home if we hadn't had family benefits. was a wonderful thing. Which brings us back to the political question. The yeah, family yeah. benefit existed as part of a socialised form of government. Yes. Uh-huh. And do you support it? Yes, I did. I mean, um, the problem was, like everything that's good, um, people always try and get round it. And in those days, too... You got um, a reduction in in your rate in your taxes, so um, a, a woman could afford to stay home and bring up her children if she wanted to. Well, we did. I mean, you, I, it would never have occurred to me to go out to work while I had children at home from school. Uh, but your husband got a tax, um, like for the first child it might be eight shillings a week, and the second child it would be ten shillings, and so on. So your, your the the break home the bring home pay was much higher then. So you could afford to stay home and bring up your children if you wanted to, and most people did. I what, certainly did. Was it an act of courage for you to put your name forward as a candidate in local election? Oh, that was a very big thing. By the stage that I put my name forward as a candidate, well, actually, I was approached. Uh, I didn't put my name forward. I was approached to join um, what was then, um, what did they call it, the team? Rates um, control team, that's what we were. Uh, and that we were a bit concerned at the way the rates were going up and not seeming to get that much for it. So um, by this stage, I'd written about a lot of issues in the paper. And so I'd become politically... Um, 
you know, uh, astute, I think. And then I, I was also working at the university by this stage, and I um, did a degree part-time in politics. So I learned about New Zealand government and how government worked internationally uh, and local bodies. So um, when I was approached to be to join the rates control team, I had completed my degree uh, majoring in politics with public policy and public administration as my support major. So I was well qualified to to do um, the work of a councillor, or I thought I was <laughs> when you what first the, get on council. What did the folk back home think of this? Oh, they were astounded. Because in England, to get into politics, again, you had to be well-off, well-educated. There is no way I would ever have been able to go to university, for example, in England, because um, only the rich could do that, because uh, there were no... Well, there may have been scholarships, but they would have been few and far between. The average working-class family could never afford to put a child through university. Which, which, so oh. when... Sorry, which which council were you standing for? At Waikato Regional Council. Oh, yeah, the one that's in a, a bit of a trouble at the moment. Yes, the one that looks after the air, the soil and the water. Um, and uh, you see, I thought I knew a lot about politics, but it wasn't until I actually became a councillor that I realised really how little I did know. And I think that's possibly one of the bad things about politics, uh, local body politics that's um, regional and local and that is that the people go in with absolutely no training whatsoever uh -huh, but they uh, bring they, a, have to pick up, um, they bring a new perspective though people like yourself they do bring in a new perspective but you don't understand how how government works how local government works i mean i thought i did because i've done a degree in it but it wasn't till I got there and I learned all the ins and outs and the backhanders and all that sort of thing, and it does happen. Did it look a bit um, murky from the point of view? Yeah, of it certainly does, definitely. Yeah. I can't remember now, but yeah. Well, one thing about the yeah. rates with the Waikato Regional Council, my late mother, bless her, used to rail against why a person living in Cambridge had to pay rates to keep uh, Lake Taupo pristine. Oh, I used to think that too, but you see, there's a, that's another thing. When I got on council and I realised what Lake Taupo does and how everybody in the Waikato um, needs Lake Taupo for our water, in actual fact, it's a very small fee that we pay. And that was one of the first things that I learned because I said, we aren't going to, we're going to abolish, you know, having to pay Lake Taupo, but... Lake Taupo is a pristine lake, and to keep it that way, it's um, it's a very, very expensive. And once you start getting algae and things like that, um, the cost of removing it and getting it back to pristine is far outweighs what it costs to keep it clean in the first place. And as we all draw water from it, then we all need to pay our part. And let's face it, it's not a lot we pay. It's about $16 or something, I think. I can't remember now, but it wasn't a lot. Yeah, I... Uh, and for what, we, for what we got for it, I mean, that was one of the very first things I learned on council. Yeah. 
My mother, my mother was also known for reigning against the amalgamation of the uh, Cambridge Borough Council with the Te Aumutu Borough Council, and she said it, <laughs> it, it, it was not going to work. Well, has it worked? Yeah. Well, the, the thing is that this is exactly me close to what I was saying before. You get in on council, and you've got all these ideas. I'm not going to do this, and I won't do that, and I won't. But when you actually get on council and you learn all the background information and all the ins and outs, you do have to change your mind. Yeah. And of course, you're um, a, you're a, you're a JP also. Yes, yeah, the university. Did, um, did you ever find out? Did you ever find out who nominated you? Yeah, uh, yes, someone at the university did. They, oh, yes, definitely. They came and asked me because they knew that it was going to impact quite a lot on my job there that they needed a JP because of what I've been a J nearly, JP nearly 30 years now and in those days there weren't a lot of JPs uh, possibly 20 and max in Hamilton in total and um, you know the university needed a JP because we were bringing in foreign students and they ha- often had documents that needed um testing or copying or whatever well thank um, you thank you for your years of contribution to community life and your services as a politician on a local government level those are important ways in which we uphold our way of life patricia gregory jp just before you go pat i remember we were talking last week about uh, call the midwife and heartbeat Yes, yes well we're going to take you out with Nick Berry, who, of course, was in the original, <laughs> original series of Heartbeats. And here yeah, he is with the theme. Hey, here. have a great day. Bye bye for now. Bye. It is uh, just on five minutes to two at three of him, 89.0. That's uh, Nick Berry, who's currently retired from acting. That's from the television series Heartbeat. Well, earlier in the programme, he was mentioned in dispatches. Good afternoon, Trevor Lloyd. Good afternoon. Trevor's talk. Yes, that's right. I heard my name mentioned earlier today. <laughs> yes, I was just thinking about what a, a topsy-turbo world we live in. Uh, Russia invading Ukraine... The COVID-19 virus, protests, global warming. Hello out there. Is there any good news in the world? Something positive. Something oh, you're, you're here. That's, that's good news. You're oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was in a small ray of light, perhaps. But uh, I'm sort of thinking back over the decades I've lived, the 50s and 60s in particular. I thought they weren't perfect. The 50s, there was the Korean War. 60s, there was Vietnam. But on the home front, everything was pretty well good going. Everybody had employment. But with the day's technology and so on, the need for employing people has shrunk considerably. And it will continue to do so as technology improves. You know, everything's on Facebook and all that sort of thing. In the old days before, they had telephone exchanges that employed a lot of people. 
there wasn't Facebook, so there's plenty of work in New Zealand Post and other post centres around the world. But now all those big organisation companies are shrinking. Everything's on a screen nowadays. Yep. So I think about what would make the world happy. I think about all the comedies we used to have on TV, like Harry Worth. Yep. You probably remember that, Bruce. Yes, his <laughs> his claim to fame, he did that trick with a window. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, that's, 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 going, back a, that's going back a million years. <laughs> it is going back a bit. The Beverly Hillbillies, Hogan's Heroes, and one of my favourites was uh, Dad's Army. Yep, well, we, we, we remember Dad's Army on uh, Monday's Historic Souvenirs, and that comes up at midday tomorrow with you-know-who. Yeah, you've got to hand it to the British in particular. They're good in comedy and drama. Coronation Street, for example, it's a cliffhanger episode every week. And uh, where they come with their storylines is beyond me. Yep, no, I'm, I'm over the protests because they came to Hamilton because I was walking through Garden Place into the library and there was a bunch of them outside the Hamilton City Council None building. None of them wear masks. Yep, and they, they drew statements. Most of them were false, fake news on the, on the, on the oh, ground no, before them. This is the thing. They get these things in, 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 on, on the computer and whatnot, all this misleading information, and they go crazy. I mean... Yep. There's a pandemic. They don't seem to realise that. Yeah, then the council later in the day, they brought in the orange uh, things to stop people driving their cars into... into um, they, were going to be, they were probably going to be settled in for the night there, but uh, they must have got the mo- they move along. Yeah, they've got to get in quick with these sort of things before it gets out of hand. Hey, Trevor, thanks for your company this afternoon. And, uh, yes, uh, you liked our guest with talking about art? Yeah, I found that quite interesting, actually, uh, uh, I wish I was here and on the panel for that. Yep, no, well, ne- next time. Hey, we'll leave you with Everlasting Love from the Love Affair from the Heartbeat soundtrack. Everlasting Love, we need a bit of it this afternoon. We'll catch you next week. Bye, Trevor. Thanks, Uh-oh. Mel. Bye-bye. Yeah. Well, just before I do go, next week, Scotty's Place next Friday, we'll have news on what... Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish Government's going to do to Putin. That's coming up on Scotty's Place next Friday at one o'clock. Thought I'd better do a bit of self-promotion. Goodbye. Welcome love, we want you. Open up your eyes, then you realise Here I stand with my everlasting love Need you by my side, girl, to be my pride Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.